Join us on Faith in the Fast Life for inspiring stories of faith and action sports. Explore the exciting intersection of faith and extreme sports with top athletes and thought leaders. So grab your gear and come along for the ride as we discover the ultimate rush of faith in the fast life. All right, uh, Faith in the Fast Life family, we are honored to be here with yet another episode, one that we didn't expect happening. We're here in the house, the makeshift podcast booth with uh, Richie Weber, who I've wanted to say Richie Cunningham since the moment I heard his name, and, and I don't know who Richie Cunningham is, but we're going to find out. Yeah, we're going to find out after the fact to figure out who Richie Cunningham is. <laughs> but without further ado, Richie Weber, uh, thanks for being here, man. Let's, man, it, like I said, unscripted, where this goes, we don't know. But tell us a little about you. What's what's your background story? Let's let's just jump into sure. It. So in a nutshell, I came from a good family, single parent household, but had all the love and support in the world. And uh, I was an all American kid growing up. I played sports. I played football. I ran track. I actually won a state title in track my sophomore year of high school. And I had some colleges looking at me, some scholarship offers. And my junior year of high school, I broke my arm playing football. First game of the year. And I always say I wish I could tell you this heroic story that, you know, at the one-yard line I score the touchdown and win the game. And unfortunately, I was just running out the clock. It was just an awkward fall. First hospital they sent me to said, you know, this break is too bad. Uh, This was close to being a compound fracture. So they sent me to another hospital uh, over in Toledo, Ohio. Now, the first hospital that I went to gave me a script of Vicodin. I go to Toledo, they gave me a script of Percocet. So keep in mind, I'm a 16, going on 17-year-old kid. Sports were everything to me at this time. Everything that kept me together, my my safe place, my happy place, right? And uh, when I get back home, I start taking these pills exactly as prescribed. But what I notice is that I feel amazing. I feel incredible. I can talk to people. I'm happy. I'm removed from my support system of the football team. Shortly after breaking my arm, my girlfriend breaks up with me. She was in college. I can't play football. And to a 16-year-old kid, that's like the end of the world, right? So I start taking these pills. Again, exactly as prescribed, but I notice that they make me feel better. And that uh, quickly spiraled into a greater addiction over time. And, you know, by the time my senior year came around, I got kicked off the track team. I failed for cocaine. And, um, you know, once I was a freshman in high school, I ended up, uh, not freshman in high school, a freshman in college, I ended up doing these pills every single day. And that quickly turned into a heroin addiction. And Became a five-time felon and went to jail, and you know the rest is history. In a nutshell, yeah. Anyway. In a nutshell, I kind of something that you said that he actually failed for cocaine. So they were they were drug testing you as a freshman in college. No, so this was in high school. Uh, we had a drug testing program, and I usually could beat the drug test. You know, I'm smart at drug mm-hmm. addict, right? Most of us are, right? Yeah, Those drug addicts were real good at manipulating systems and figuring all that. So I always would carry uh, fake urine with me to school to beat these drug tests, and the principal every time would be so upset. Uh, I guess when he would call me down for drug tests, I learned later, he said, we're going to get him this time, because they knew I was doing something. Right. And I'd always pass with my fake urine. Uh, well, as God would have it, you know, I was it was my senior year of high school. I was doing great. I was ranked second in the state for the uh, 400 meter, third in the 200, and sixth in the 100. I was just going to prove everybody wrong, right? And I worked really hard, stopped using uh, for the three months leading up to the season because I was going to prove everybody wrong. And I ended up pulling my hamstring uh, at the third meet of the year. And afterwards, I was real bummed, so I called my friend Rachel, and she gave me a script of Vicodin that she had because, uh, of course, my hamstring hurts. I need something. I'm doing these Vicodin, and I get invited to hang out with some friends. And 
Uh, they offered me cocaine and I tried cocaine for the first time. And where I came from, you know, you don't do cocaine, right? Like that's for losers. And I did that for the first time. And uh, that was on a Saturday night. Uh, come Monday morning, I had a girl come over to my house just to pee in a bottle for me so I could bring it with me. I go to school. I'm sleeping in study hall. They call me to the drug test. I'm like, all right, fine. Feeling around my pockets. My God, I don't have it with me. I forgot it on the freaking dryer that morning. Literally had the girl come over to pee in a bottle for me. Forgot it. Took like an hour to try and, you know, find a way out, but I couldn't. And I failed that drug test, got kicked off the team and lost my scholarship offers and just downhill spiral from there. Isn't it crazy? Like despite that spiral, the things that we would do, how much work we put into making it appear like we're normal, making it appear like we're sober. I mean, you have to call another person and ask them. I, mean, I did this before too, actually. There was a period of time that I had uh, actually an employee of mine that was peeing in a bottle for me. And uh, he's probably going to hear this message right now. And, and uh, shout out to Kale for those years and praise God for being where we are today. But isn't that crazy that you go through that much of a mess to to protect what we're in it's so much easier just to tell the truth and live in the light exactly so tell us a little bit more let's go back further than that i want to know more about your faith background sure did you grow up in a single parent home yeah did you have a relationship with christ were you raised in the church what what happened with that stuff so funny thing is yeah actually i was you know i went to church i had a real close relationship with god Uh, you know before i'd run i would pray and I literally felt a sense of strength from that every time I would run. And I knew God. God did miracles in my life many, many times. When I won that state title in track, I actually found out the day before that I had mono. And for those that don't know, if you have mono and you stress yourself too much physically, like you can literally die. I think it blows up your liver or something, right? I wanted to win that bad anyway. And, um, you know, it was interesting because... Uh, as that addiction progressed, you know, I got further and further away from God. And coincidentally, my life became more and more of a mess. Yeah. Isn't, uh, man, it's funny. It doesn't matter whether you're raised in it or not raised in it like I was. Like the things that can happen in between it. And now Satan will distract you. Even if you're close to him, there's these other little things out here that are just grabbing a hold of you and, and going to gonna pull you down. So you had a little bit of that background as you're starting into addiction now we're, we're coming into your freshman year of college yep right you've lost all your so you lost the scholarships because of track right yeah so you still went to college though yeah so i managed to get a partial ride academic scholarships because of my uh act scores so my gpa by the time i graduated was a 2.4 which is way less than what i was capable of i think my senior year of high school, I think I missed 50 days of school. And to put that in perspective, a nine weeks, like a quarter of the school year, is 45 days. And I missed most of that after I had failed and got kicked off the track team. So got a partial ride for the ACT uh, scores. I scored in the 98th percentile for uh, writing on the ACT and the 99th for reading. Got the partial ride. And, um, you know, I think about halfway into my freshman year of college, that's when I was doing the pills like every single day. And I'll never forget the first time I started to think that I might have a problem was one of my roommates came out one day, he said, you know, I'm not feeling too good. Another one of my roommates comes out, he says, I'm not feeling too good either. I'm thinking, wow, I'm feeling kind of cruddy too. Must be something going around, right? And then I thought for a second and it hit me. I think I'm dope sick. And we had heard about this, you know, fabled dope sickness before from uh, other people would get pills from that were older. 
And to me, I always just thought it was like a pill hangover or something, right? And I kind of laughed it off to that, but that was the first time I started to have an idea that, you know, I may have a problem with this or this may be affecting me in a negative way. Right. Yeah. And that's, uh, man, I understand. How old are you at this point? Uh, at this point, I'm probably 19, 18 or 19. Yeah. When did you try your first drug? Uh, first time that I drank was my freshman year of high school. So I would have been about 15 years old. Okay. So you're right in that same, same ballpark with you. So now you're a freshman in college. You're realizing you're dope sick. Yeah. Was it your, your buddies were doing the same thing? They were drawing up fills as well? Yeah. So this was the weird thing about the culture back then was that we honestly did not know how addictive these pills were. I thought because a doctor gave them to me that they were okay. And the other strange thing was that it was somewhat socially acceptable. I always compare it to this. You know, back in like maybe the 80s or 90s, a lot of people smoked pot, right? Not everybody did, but it was somewhat socially acceptable, right? So not everybody at my high school did pills, but there was probably 30 or 40 of us that did. And I'm talking about football players, cheerleaders, honor roll students. Some of us would do pills. I just snort them right there at the parties. And uh, it was just like, oh, whatever, that's Richie. That's his thing. He does pills. We smoke pot or we drink. He does pills, right? Right. What year would this have been? Uh, 2010 would have been when I was in college. So my addiction probably started in 2008 going into 2009. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty normal at that point. I remember being on the fire department and like, 2006 and hearing about farm parties that the high schoolers were doing and me shaking my head going, really? Right. All the drugs I've done in my life and they're just dumping all these pills into a bowl and picking what you want. Like, that was just insane to me. Yeah. Um, and you probably would have been falling into that generation roughly. Yeah, that's exactly when it really started to take off. You know, you started to see these, uh, I guess, farm parties or, yeah, sometimes we would... uh Raid our parents' medicine cabinets, see what we could find and whatever we could have. You know, that's what we'd end up uh, using that night for the party. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, so with that, so freshman year, you're starting to notice you're dope sick. You know, tell us more. Where does, where does that lead? Tell us about the college journey. Sure. So I think where things really started to tip the scale for me, because before, keep in mind, we're all in college. Now, we'd play Halo, we'd study together, and we'd also be snorting pills sometimes, Right. This is just normal routine. I mean, yeah. so you snort your pills, you sit and you play the game, you study a little bit, you, you go to college. Life is, yeah. yeah. I think where it really started to turn for me was uh, me and my ex-girlfriend broke up at the time. I was real upset, so I started just snorting them every day. Before that, it was more weekends and stuff. And, uh, you know, we'd feel a little dope sick after, but like I said, I would call it a pill hangover. I started doing it daily, you know, uh, through partway through probably my freshman year, and that's when I dropped out was after that semester. So that did you drop out because of the pill addiction at that point or just because you weren't keeping up with the schoolwork and couldn't couldn't hang anymore? Both, right? You know, if I wasn't doing these pills, I would have been able to make it to my classes more often and gotten good grades. But because of the pills and the partying, you know, I couldn't keep up with my grades. So I dropped out and uh, became kind of a full-time drug dealer at that point. Right. Were you, um, like, were you going to college in the same place you grew up? Or were you... About an hour away. It was uh, called Bowling Green State University, so it was about an hour away from Clyde, Ohio, where I grew up. Okay. So now you've dropped out, you're dealing pills. Uh, tell us more. Yeah, so the main thing that I sold was actually weed. I wasn't a big weed smoker, so I actually did pretty good with the weed for a while because I didn't use my own product. I'd buy and sell pills, but it was more so just to feed my own habit, and I did that for about a year or two 
decently successfully. I also started trading stocks at the time. I did pretty well on that. So I had all the justifications, right? You know, I'm, I'm making money. I'm feeding my habit. I'm, I'm trading stocks. And, um, you know, after I dropped out of college, soon after that, I ended up moving to Florida for about a year because there was the pill mills down there at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I knew a professional wakeboarder that got popped for a pill, a pill mill, actually. Kind of interesting. Really? Yeah. Well, well just knew, knew of him, but that's uh it's funny how we'll justify that once again i'm making money like my cocaine addiction i was you know selling boats i was making good money but i was spending every bit of it on on cocaine and that's crazy how that works so you were selling boats when you were um okay because i was wondering that that's an expensive uh habit to have cocaine right very much functional like i, yeah. I mean an extreme addiction um but i got to work every day and i made the money so that i could continue to do that i may not have slept I lived off of Red Bull and Monster Energy all day long so I could get to the drug dealer's house again that night and, you know, took care of a child in the meantime. Like, it was pretty messy. But we're here for your story on this one. But yeah. One of the things you said there popped into my head. Um, do you remember the Notorious B.I.G., the rapper? And he said, never get high on your own supply. Yeah. Yeah. So you were selling weed, but you were doing the oxys and all that other stuff. So moved to Florida where the pill mills are and... What escalates from there? Yeah, so what had happened, I guess I left this part of the story out. Part of another reason why I moved to Florida was I actually uh, caught my first charge before I moved to Florida. So that back, story... Back in Ohio? Yeah, back in Ohio. Okay. Um, I had tried bath salts for the first time. That's an interesting one. That's the first person I've ever talked to that, that tried that. Really? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it to a friend. Yeah, well, I hope you wouldn't recommend <laughs> no, but especially not bath salts. Um, every time I did bath salts, I would catch a felony. Every time. Man, tell me more. Like, that just sounds wild to me. Like we we gotta we gotta get the awareness of all this stuff out there. This is uh, listeners who have kids and cousins and aunts and uncles and whatever else that are in crazy places right now. And and hopefully your story will reach them, make a difference. Yeah, that's why we do what we do, right, man? Is that hopefully somebody doesn't have to walk the same path we did and have the same mistakes. So. Yeah, long story short with this, you know, I, I tried bath salts for the first time and was up for two or three days. I was with my buddy. We went to Toledo to go score some pills. He's so paranoid partway through, he thinks I'm trying to set him up. Then he thinks I'm trying to steal his girlfriend. So then he's like trying to get me pulled over, I think. He's doing all this weird stuff and eventually we make it back. He suggests we go to the bar. So we ride bicycles to the bar. Keep in mind, I'm not old enough to drink. We go to this bar, they serve us. We'd been up for two or three days. We ride our bicycles back, and he just takes off way ahead of me. I'm like, Brent, wait for me, wait for me, and he's just biking away. I get to his house, and I think he locked me out or something, and I'm so tired at this point, I just pass out right there in the yard on the bicycle. So there's a hospital across the street, and somebody at the hospital saw me in the yard, thought I was dead, called the cops. The cops come to make sure I'm alive. They wake me up, and you know, my first thought is just like, oh, shit, what do I have on me? And I'm feeling around. I had this little tiny container that had a couple oxys in it at the time. I think it was Xanax or two. And I'm feeling around for this damn pill container so that I can eat these pills. And the cops, you know, I'm feeling in my pockets, so they're getting nervous, obviously, right? They're, you need to take your hands out of your pockets. I'm not paying attention. Well, finally, they get upset enough. They're like, all right, come here. So they go to arrest me, and I just take off running. Now, keep in mind, I'm still pretty freaking fast at this time, right? So I take off, and I'm gone. Um, later at the court hearing, they testified and said, yes, Mr. Weber, we chased him for about 30 feet, and we realized it was futile to chase him any further. 
Now, this is where the story gets really wild, man, is keep in mind, I've been up for days on these bath salts, and bath salts make you incredibly paranoid, like meth, but even worse, right? So I'm running around town for probably the next two hours, and in my head, I think there's dogs chasing me. I can hear the dogs barking. At one point, I thought I saw a helicopter flying over me. So I'm running around town for two hours. I think it's still about four in the morning. I come across a cornfield. I dive in this cornfield and start crawling army style through this cornfield, trying to hide from the cops. I'm crawling through there all night, and again, I think I hear dogs. At one point, I took off my shirt and threw it to try and throw off the scent of the dog or something. Long story short, man, about 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, the sun comes up. I'm exhausted. I'm dehydrated. I'm just beat. So I stand up. I say, okay, you guys got me. I'm done. I give up. And I look around, and there's no one around me. I'm just so baffled at this point, man. And uh, I, I uh, get out of the cornfield. I walk probably half a mile, find some person's house, and say, hey, can I use your phone? And, like, dude, I'm, like, all beat up. I got scratches and briars all over me. I look crazy because I am crazy at this point. Thankfully, they were nice enough to uh, call my grandparents. My grandparents picked me up. I went home, fell asleep, and I wake up. And um, this was one of the first times I tried to get sober, and we can dive into that a little bit more after. But to get back to the original thing of me catching this felony is what had happened was when I ran, they went back to that bicycle later. Apparently, those pills had fallen out of my pocket before I ran. They ended up charging me with it because it was in the general area, and that's how I had those felony charges pending. To all that, they didn't actually even find you at that point. No, I got away. And essentially, you got away, went to grandparents' house, mm-hmm. slept it off, and then tell me more about the, the attempt at sobriety. Yeah, so after that had happened, you know, I was worried because the cops, I'd given them my ID beforehand. If I wouldn't have done that, I might have gotten away with it, right? It wasn't for those meddling cops. Um, <laughs> but... uh I'd given my ID, so I had a feeling in my head I might get charged for this stuff, right? Because I, you know, Brent had told me they found the pills. So it kind of, like, scared me. And, um, you know, I detoxed cold turkey for three or four days at my house and um, started uh, reading the Bible again, actually, and then trying to get sober and listening to a lot of Christian music. And I think I stayed sober for about a month, month and a half, but... My biggest problem with that attempt at sobriety was I had no support system. I didn't have anybody to hang out with. Everybody I hung out with at that time did drugs. So I was just by myself and got lonely and eventually went and hung out with some of my old using buddies. And I think after a time or two of hanging out with them, I ended up using again. Yeah, that peer pressure thing, right? Like it's, uh, that was the final thing with us is we changed our life completely. I say our because my wife came in and, you know, girlfriend at the time, and I told her I was an addict, and she said, well, what's next? What are we going to do now? Sure. And uh, the beauty of that was we switched everything up. Like, we no longer, we moved as far out to the west as we could. We, I mean, I didn't get on social media for six years. Uh, Maybe five years, but it was a long time. Until we started ministry, I wasn't on personal social medias at all. Yeah. Um, so it was that long of completely changing your life. You got to change your scenery. You got to change your friends. And unfortunately, most of those people that are in addition with you are, are not actually friends. Like they don't have your best interest in mind. They're just validating your mess. Well, you know, they're your friends if you got drugs, right? You're the most popular person in the room. But as soon as the drugs are gone, they're going too. They're gone too. Yeah, absolutely. And you're just left there empty. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So, all right. So now back to using back to doing the thing now you head to florida yeah then i head to florida i meet a girl 
we hang out for about two weeks. I'm like, wow, this is the love of my life. I proposed to her. She's my fiance now. And I have no license at the time. So I have her drive my car down to Florida and we live at this extended stay motel. And uh, yeah, I, I sold a lot of drugs there. Allegedly, of course, was getting stuff off the dark web again. Allegedly, I would get bottles of a thousand Percocets shipped to me from China. And uh, at this extended stay hotel, there was these people that uh, were there from something called the Tulsa Welding School. It was like one of those commercials you'd see online, like, wow, do you want to be a welder? Well, you can come here. They'd come from all over the country. I got the pills for about $2 a piece. I'd sell them for five. And that was, you know, kind of how I supported myself at the time. So literally off the dark web, you found a place you could just order these things. Yeah. And that's probably still available today. It is, unfortunately. It's a really scary thing. A lot of people have relapsed because of it, because you can get the drugs shipped right to your house and use cryptocurrency, so it's somewhat anonymous. And um, yeah, at the time, actually, the first uh, Bitcoin that I bought was $5 a piece back then. And now it's now I mean, 30000 me, this plus. is all new information. Like, I don't oh, yeah. Never, never been in that. That's interesting. So that's... It's like imagine Amazon, but like drug dealers, right? Like every drug you could ask for was on there. I used to buy heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, DMT, everything. I used to get off the dark web. Wow. And literally shipped to you through the mail, right service, or FedEx, or UPS, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the uh, federal government was uh, mulling my drugs, again, allegedly, of course. Allegedly. Allegedly. Like the word allegedly. Yeah. That's going to be the, that's gonna be the title of this podcast. <laughs> allegedly. allegedly. Richie Weber. Yeah, Richie Weber. Allegedly. allegedly. I, I like it. So now, so tell me what else happens in Florida, man. Like, where where do we go from that? I mean, just a couple highlights of my life down in Florida, I guess, was another thing that I did was I got connected with some drug dealers out in the hood that uh, could get Percocet 30s uh, for about $15 a piece. And at the time, you know, wholesale or retail value, they were like $30 a piece. Uh, so I thought this was fantastic, right? Great deal. I'd buy a bunch of those. I think I'm probably spending three or $400 a day on pills at this time. Giant. Not for personal use. You're, you're, you're using still, but you're buying and reselling. So personal use was three or 400 bucks a day. Okay. It was my personal habit at that time. I'm buying way more than that. You know, I'm so buying. Everybody knows, like, we, we laugh about this and Richie giggles about this. And I, I think that's a place that we can be at now in our addiction. And I look back at my eight ball to quarter ounces a day and go, wow, thank God I'm still alive. Oh, man, I agree 100%. For me, I like to be able to laugh at my past so that it doesn't have to harm me anymore. Back then, it was miserable. It's not fun. There's nothing funny about it when you're in the middle of it. It's literally life or death. But I do like being able to look back at the madness now, especially the places God has taken me, and laugh and see that, you know, things worked out in the end, and I can kind of laugh at my insanity now. But yeah, at the time, not very funny. Complete insanity. So you're three to $400 a day. You're selling more than that. Tell me more. So what else happens with this gang, the, the guys from the head? Yes, I'm living in Jacksonville, Florida. At the time, I think it was the second biggest murder capital in the country. Was hanging around. If I'm public, Colorado, probably. Probably, right? I think Detroit might have been at the top. But I, is, is Pablo up there? I don't know. We always get a bad rap for something down here, so. I got you. But um, there was one time, you know, I was pretty well respected down there just because I spent so much money. Now, I'm from a small town, right? 5,000 people. I'm not a gangster. I'm not a thug. I talk like I'm white. I might be Hispanic, but I obviously talk, you know, like a, you know, like a country boy, right? That's where I grew up. And um, 
So they normally respected me just because I spent so much money, but there was one time I got invited to the barbecue. We're hanging out. I used to love freestyle rapping back then, so I'd be freestyle rapping with all these people from the hood. I'm passing around my iPad. We're listening to instrumentals, and there's this, like, 16-year-old kid that's kind of looking at me weird, and I'm drunk, so I don't notice this at the time that he was kind of eyeballing me. But he comes up, and he says, Hey, man, can I pick a beat on your uh, iPad? I was like, Oh, sure. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. I hand him the iPad. As soon as I do, I'm like, Oh, no, I've made a terrible mistake. He takes off running, right, trying to steal my iPad. The time, this iPad means the world to me because I thought I was going to be, like, a rapper. Like, that was going to be the thing I was going to do, you know. Country kid from Clyde's going to be a rapper, right? So I'm pissed. I take off. I chase him down. Again, I'm pretty fast at the time. I'm still in pretty good shape. I hadn't went too far down the scale. I tackle him, and I'm wrestling around with him. I rip the iPad away from him. Well, he had his two brothers there, too, so they come over and start jumping me. They're kicking me while I'm down. And out of nowhere, I hear my fiancé at the time go, Get the F off him! And she pushes one of them. And at that point, something in my head snapped. It was like fight or flight, right? And I'm like, oh, crap. I'm in the hood. My fiancé just knocked somebody over. And these people may try and kill us. Something in me snapped. I stand up. I punch one in the face. I kick another one. And um, I just rip off my shirt and I yell. I says, who wants to mess with me now? Let's go, right? Just total insanity. So how they handle things there, they squared me and the kid up that tried to steal from me. Like, all right, you got to square up, fight, take care of your beef, right? So I stand up with him and he doesn't want to fight me. He's way smaller than me. And, uh, you know, I throw a couple punches, and, and he keeps backing away. And so I kind of fake him out with one of these, and he almost falls over. And I laugh. I say, see, dude, you don't want none of this. Well, at that point, then his two brothers start circling me. So now it's me fighting all three of them again. And I'll never forget this. It was kind of an ego boost at the time. I remember the one looking at me like, watch out. He legit. He legit. I'm fighting these three black dudes in the hood. I'm like, that's right. I am legit. You better watch out, right? So I'm fighting them. I get a couple of hits on them, and the... The saving grace was in all honesty, if you, three people fight you, 99% of the time you're going to lose if they all come at you at once, no matter how tough you are. It's just a numbers game, right? The thing that I had fortunate was they didn't want to be the first one to get hit. So I was able to kind of back out of there slowly, get a couple hits on them. Then me and my fiance get in the car, take off. And I think about two minutes down the road, my hands start shaking. The whole time I'm there, I'm calm, cool, collected, acting tough. But when I get down the road... That's when reality sinks in. Like, dude, I could have got stabbed. I could have got shot. Lucky to be alive. I'm in the hood fighting people. Like, Gun not a smart thing. Gunch wasn't done. No, he wasn't, man. <laughs> so how does that lead, that fight, that situation in the hood? How does that, they, does those same people end up being the ones you're buying the pills from? Or is this just a, a coincidence of it? So what happened after that, I had a lot of respect after that because I handled my business I didn't back down I still still I still buy pills from the other people that were there you know the people that tried to jump me weren't my dealers they were just people in the hood in the neighborhood and um you know they basically my dealers like basically just stayed out of it like they were neutral but they did respect me because I stood up for myself so I stayed down there for another six months or so until I finally have to go back to Ohio to face those charges okay and so in in Ohio you get charged on that and you, you know, go yeah. into the in the jail and the prison yeah so I get indicted on that so I come back to face my charges and I wasn't aware of this so I turned myself in on a Friday so they told me oh you turn yourself in you get your court date well I didn't wasn't aware that you couldn't bond out over a weekend 
So this is like the first time I withdraw, withdraw like bad. Because I again, I had three, three to four hundred dollars a day at this point. Exactly, man, and that was awful. I think I spent three or four days there just puking my brains out and wishing I would die. Yeah. So that cycle continued for probably the next two or three years, where I would, um, you know, go to jail, get out of jail, pay bonds. I'd find ways to manipulate my case and just keep pushing it back further and further. And um, unfortunately, what happened is in Ohio, if you miss court, that's another felony charge. Uh, so one of my felonies ended up being for missing court because I didn't want to be dope sick. And, uh, you know, while I'm on probation, there's a time that I get out of jail for two or three months. You know, after two or three months of sitting in jail, I get out. I'm feeling good, ready to take on the world, feeling happy. And, uh, you know, I end up hanging around my old friends again, uh, relapsing and overdosing that night for the first time. What was the longest bit of sobriety you had before you actually had sobriety? So technically it would have been seven months, but that seven months was spent all in jail. Now, the one thing I will say about that that I think is important to touch on was it was the first hint that I had that recovery would be possible because about a month into jail, I'm sitting there, I'm laughing, I'm playing cards. We're eating a thing called a break, right? And that's basically prison food. You mash up a bunch of ramen noodles and other random things that normally you'd never eat. I'm laughing, having fun. I'm like, dude, I'm happy right now. Like, And I thought, I'm like, why am I so happy? This makes no sense. I'm in jail. And it hit me. I was like, you're sober, dude. That's why. You're not on drugs. You're not in the madness. And it was a thing that I, when I did get sober, I took with me and that I still think of today. Like if I start feeling sorry for myself, I remember, dude, you found happiness in jail. You can be happy in jail. You have all these blessings around you. You can be happy anywhere. Right. Well, the Apostle Paul, right? Yeah. I mean, true happiness, whether he had little or lots. Mm -hmm. His peace was in the Lord. Exactly. And it's, I mean, sometimes when you take all of this other stuff around us, you take all of that away. That's when you can actually find true happiness without the distractions of the world around you. That's so true, man. That's where uh, every time I'd go too far off the rails, it seemed like God would put me into jail. And that's where I would kind of get in touch with him again. I'd start working out again, eating food on a consistent basis, getting close to God. And coincidentally, that's where I'd start to feel happy again. So so tell me more. So you're, you're in and out. You're catching multiple. How many felonies did you end up with? So in total, I ended up uh, catching five felonies that I was convicted of. Yeah. Okay. And how did you, I mean, how did you walk that out? Was it serving time? Was it paying? I mean, how much time did you end up spending in prison with that? So in and out, I was in and out for about two years. Uh, longest I ever did was seven months. And um, one of the last things, the last felony charges I got is about every time I'd overdose, I'd catch more felonies because I'd have drugs on me. Um, my last overdose, I, uh, was at my mom's house. This was when fentanyl first came into the picture too, I should add. What year is that? What year would have this been? Probably 2014. So. It's crazy too, because I mean, it's been around forever, but for me, like I didn't really start to hear about fentanyl yeah. until it seems like a couple years ago, maybe three years ago now, you start hearing about it. But obviously when you're in as deep as you're in, you're you're truly an addict. You know what's out there. You know what's coming because the dealers are offering it to you. You're buying, and all of a sudden you're doing different things with it. So, so how many times did you overdose? Uh, the the cops actually came to. I don't remember how many times I've actually overdosed. Overdosed, but as far as times that cops or paramedics were involved, was two. And I feel like we could go down 
a thousand different rabbit holes of your story, but we're gonna we're gonna try to keep it somewhat brief for our listeners. So we're not sitting here for two and a half hours, and I'll encourage them now as listeners to to look you up on social media. Sure, uh, Richie Weber. And you have another page? Yeah, it's called the All American Addict. Is my main main page right now. You can find me on any social media platform. For the listeners who want to hear more, we're going to go to that. But tell me more about that last overdose. Yeah, and and what? Let's get to the good stuff. Here. So we went through all these things. We've been to Skid Row. You've been in the darkness. You've been in the hood. You've you've been to prison. When when did God get a hold of your life and really make the change to where you're at now? So that last overdose that I had. Again, I was at my mom's, and it's one of the first times that I got fentanyl. Up until then, I could do half-gram shots of heroin at a time and be okay because my tolerance was so high. This time, I think it was only a tenth of a gram that I shot up, and I remember I stood up off the toilet. I take two steps, and I just hit the floor. And, um, you know, I literally died, and uh, I didn't go to heaven. It was just total blackness, nothingness. The next thing I remember is I'm yelling, I'm screaming, and I've got five cops trying to hold me down. And I guess when they had hit me with the uh, Narcan, uh, it put me into instant withdrawals. I bit my tongue. I was spitting blood everywhere. They said it looked like the exorcist. And my poor mom, man, she's the one that found me and saved my life. And she was literally giving me CPR, and I would have went brain dead during that overdose if she wasn't. And uh, you know, I put that woman through literal hell. And uh, unfortunately, after that overdose, I kept using, was on the run for another two or three months, and... um that leads up into where the change actually occurs, right? So what was what were you on the run from at that point? You run from the law or you're just on the run wiling out like we owed yeah. it? Both. Mostly from the law, though, right? Uh, was I had, you know, I think at the time I had like eight or nine pending felony charges. I was convicted of five. But I was on the run, you know, on and off for probably six months, you know, just where I had warrants everywhere I went. I had to look over my shoulder. And... um you know, what finally changed for me was, and I recommend this to any of the listeners watching the, the loved one, you got to stop enabling your loved ones. You're going to kill them if you don't. And that's not your fault, not anything to feel guilty about, but it is important to remember that if you're enabling your loved one, you're not helping them, you're hurting them. And ultimately what changed for me is um, I had these warrants. If I didn't turn myself in, my mom was going to have to pay another $5,000 bond and maybe even lose her house. And she said, you cost me too much money. You know, you need to go to jail and turn yourself in. And if you don't, I'm not giving you money, and I'll make sure your grandparents don't give you money. So I turned myself into jail. Uh, that was November 6, 2014. Turned myself into jail. I actually, again, allegedly smuggled Suboxone into jail with me. You guys can use your imagination how I was able to do that. Yeah, well, the book go to any length at that point of addiction. Like, it's amazing the things it, it, you do. It's it has. So, yeah, I turned myself into jail. I uh, remember I took one strip of Suboxone when I first got there, and uh, I accidentally dropped the rust in the toilet when I was retrieving the Suboxone. And I kind of took that as a sign from God. I thought, you know, I could take these for the next month and then have to withdraw in jail and feel like crap, or I could not take them. So, again, allegedly, I gave them to a buddy of mine, and he gave me some bunch of ramen noodles. And uh, What's your take on Suboxone? Oh, man. So again, we could go on all, all day for this, but my take on Suboxone is it can be a good bridge to get people into recovery, right? Like if somebody's homeless and can't get into rehab, great thing to keep somebody alive. Should you be on it for a year? No. It's, I get messages from people that are stuck on Suboxone or methadone more than any other drug right now. Yeah, so to me, it feels like you're just giving them a drug to replace the drug. At the end of the day, it is. It's just the less harmful drug, but it is. It's a dangerous 
game to play when it comes to summarizing. So you ditch that, you get your ramen noodles, and, and what's next? This is where God comes into play in this picture. I'm in there for about three or four days, withdrawn, going through it. My mom comes to visit me like she always does, bless her heart. She comes to see me, I see her, and she's tearing up. And she said, Rishi, I have some bad news. She said, uh, your friend Bryce, he overdosed and he passed away. And um, I grew up with Bryce. I played football, played Little League. He was an awesome kid. Everybody loved Bryce. He's a really good kid with a bad problem. And uh, he actually died the day I turned myself into jail. Hmm. If I would have hung out with him that day, I'd probably be dead too. And I'll never forget this is... You know, I'm withdrawing so I can actually feel feelings at this point. I'm in jail so I can't run from them with drugs. And my mom looks at me. She says, Richie, I thought about how that could have been used so many different times. How that could have been my son dead on my bathroom floor. And she's crying. And something about that, by the grace of God, like actually hit me. I've heard my mom say things like this before. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I couldn't feel it because I always had the drugs to numb out the pain. So I went back to my jail cell. And I'm thinking, like, I'm in the jail. I'm in jail for, like, the 10th time. I've lost all my opportunities. I'm about to die. I'm putting my mom through hell. And I got on my knees, man, and I said the prayer. The prayer we've all said at some point in our life, no matter what we're going through. I said, God, please take this away from me. I will do whatever it takes to have this taken from me. I promise. Except this time I meant it with every bone in my body, every fiber in my being. I felt the Holy Spirit come into me. And I heard God say, he said, this will be taken from you. And instantly, I no longer had a craving for heroin, no longer had a want for it. I haven't to this day. I've had ups and downs, of course. Never used heroin ever since, man, eight years later. Praise God. Amen. That's awesome. So now, I mean, we've heard some of the darkness, heard how you got to the light. What is God doing with you now? Tell us, tell us about that. Let's let the listeners know. So I want to mention this too, is... Recovery. Sometimes when you get these amazing spiritual experiences, they open the door, but life still happens. There's ups and downs, right? So I get out. I think the first month that I'm out, I'm just terrified. I'm facing, you know, over five years in prison. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to stay sober. So I don't do heroin. I don't think about doing heroin. But what I do do on occasion, not every night, but I would get really drunk and listen to music and, and cry and wonder what I'm going to do with my life. And by the grace of God, um, I was court-ordered to an IOP program. I start going there. Um, I meet some people there that invite me to these things called 12-step meetings. I'd never heard of them before, right? I never really pursued them. I start going, and I have this thought. I'm like, okay, maybe if I go to meetings every day, maybe the judge will see, like, I can stay sober, right? I can have a chance at this. And uh, I met, like, the perfect sponsor, the best sponsor. This man saved my life. He uh, had a fellowship. They called him the Brotherhood. They were all biker dudes way older than me, and they took me under their wing, and they showed me a, a new way to live. You know, they took me through the steps. I went to meetings every day with them, and uh, I really start having a big, profound spiritual change. There's a saying in our program is that you'll be amazed before you're halfway through. There's things called these things called the 12 promises, and that the promises will come true. And uh, the first one that came true for me that really hit me, I'll never forget, is that we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us, right? And that's because with the third step, we turn our will over to God as we understand him, right? And there were these situations that would pop up that in hindsight sound silly, but at the time, I did not know how to handle them before. Things as simple as, cute girl wants to hang out with me and do crack or smoke, so do, uh, do coke or something, right? Normally, I'd go hang out with her and say, oh, you can do coke. I won't do it, and I'd end up using, right? 
I was able to say no, right? I was able to put this together this time. And the other crazy thing is start feeling happy again. Like I'm genuinely happy. I'm on fire for recovery. I love going to these meetings. I'm waking up at seven o'clock in the morning for breakfast meetings. I hate waking up in the morning, right? I'm not a morning person, but I'm excited. I'm seeing these people share their stories of recovery. I'm laughing again, you know, without drugs. I'm happy. Uh, even though I'm facing five years in prison, I'm happy. And God's like starting to put these miracles in front of me. That's awesome. Yep. So now, so you find a 12 step, you find sponsors, you, you, you do the steps. And now you're in public Colorado on a much bigger mission than, than those 12 steps could have, you know, you, anybody could have ever imagined. So tell us about what you're doing now. Sure. So, uh, now I uh, run a nonprofit called fight for recovery that started, uh, because my best friend, Charles Buchanan had passed away from an overdose when I was about seven months sober after I'd gotten out of, uh, rehab prison, basically. So I guess I should add, you know, I was out on the streets for about two months. I had to go to court to face that potential five years in prison. I'm on fire. I'm like, God's got me, right? My sponsor comes to uh, the court with me. Prosecutor's trying to throw the book at me. He's like, Mr. Weber has like been given every opportunity. He's missed IOP. He's been on the run. Like, We want to send him to prison for five months. My sponsor gets up there and again saves my life, man. And that's why I'm so passionate about what I do today. He says, you know, the judge asked, what do you think? He says, you know, right now I think Richie's malleable. He's done everything I've asked him to do. He goes to meetings almost every day. He's worked the steps with me. I think he has an opportunity to change. He wasn't going to say for sure that he knew I'd make it, but that I had the potential. And the judge was kind enough to, instead of sending me to prison for five years, I went to this program called Crossways, which is basically a lockdown prison rehab for five months. Now, at the time, I'm a little upset at God because you know, when I heard him say this won't be taken from you, I thought that also included like my freedom and stuff, right? And it was the freedom from addiction. It was my happiness. It was this newfound life. He didn't take that away, right? And in hindsight, I got five months instead of five years. Pretty big miracle, right? And that time in, in uh, Crossway ended up being a great thing. I did the most epic fourth step of all time, taking my inventory. I had a lot of time to reflect on myself and think about who I wanted to be when I got out of there. And I'll never forget I would used to walk laps around uh, crossways, right? Listen to music. And um, there was this sense inside of me that God had really big plans for me. Like I could just feel it. I had no clue what it was, but I was like, when I get out of here, I'm going to do something. And it's going to be really important. And if you told me what it was today, never in a million years would I think it was this. And um, it's it's been a beautiful blessing. Like I was saying, you know, that nonprofit that I started, um, that happened because I lost my friend. And there's a verse in the Bible that says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And there's two friends that I have. There's multiple, but two that really stick out that if they wouldn't have passed away, I wouldn't be doing the things that I do today. And I try to honor their memory as best as I can by living for them. And, you know, the first was Bryce. His death was what caused me to wake up and get sober. The second was Charles. His death was what inspired me to go out there and help other people. So I did a mixed martial arts fight in his honor. I trained for two or three months. I had this big fight. You know, there's five, six hundred people there, people I haven't seen from high school forever. I'm nervous. I go out there and I end up winning in 38 seconds. And, um, you know, my first thought is like, wow, I found something I'm good at. This is cool, right? Second thing is, is after you win a fight, they put a microphone in your face, say, who do you want to think? I didn't plan any of this. This was just Holy Spirit, man, this 
I told that entire crowd of 600 people that I did this fight in honor of my best friend Charles, that he was a good person with a bad problem, that he overdosed and died from heroin. He was a state wrestler, great kid. And then I told the whole crowd that I too was a heroin addict, but that not only is recovery possible, but all things are possible through recovery. And I hear the whole place go nuts. They're clapping, they're cheering. And uh, <laughs> afterwards, there's probably 20 or 30 people that come up to me and say, I gave hope for them, their son or their daughter, that they too could recover. And it was in that moment that I saw God's plan for me come together. All those moments that we have of like, why does God hate me? Why am I detox in jail? Why am I a failure? I'm like, oh, well, this is why. <laughs> this is why I did all this, right? But God, you know, he brings it all together. Absolutely, brother. Yeah, so how can they get a hold of your nonprofit? Like if people want to give or they want to pour into you and, and support this mission that you've got going, how do, uh, how do they reach you on that? Yeah, you can reach me on uh, social media, The All-American Addict. Um, I also have a phone number that I can put up here on the podcast later if people need to reach out. And again, I have resources across the country that are available with or without insurance. The people can go to detox. They can go to rehab. Sometimes I have scholarship. Uh, it's been a huge blessing. I've been able to scholarship 30 of my friends into treatment from my hometown, uh, you know, into places that are outside of Ohio. You know, some of the nicest treatment centers in the entire country where they can go and get help. And that's all because of Charles. You know, I started that nonprofit and God has just blown it up in ways that I never thought possible. When I started, I just wanted to help my friends. I didn't want to see them die anymore. You know, I kept asking, why doesn't somebody do something about this? And God said, you are somebody go out and do something about it. It's good. So, uh, yeah. And that's just continued to blow up where I've done everything from going on a show called, uh, 60 days in on A and E to reaching 30 million people a month on social media to being out here in uh, Colorado, uh, doing a documentary. This documentary is on addiction, homelessness, and mental health. I'm literally going to every state interviewing people like yourself, interviewing, uh, senators, uh, lawyers, judges, homeless people, addicts themselves in the jails, out of the jails going to be a comprehensive look at addiction across america what we can do to fix it what the problem is and how we can change things you know and it's opened uh, a lot of doors and it's all started you know with god's plan right back there in that jail do you have a name for the documentary at this point uh you know i was going to call it the all-american addict but as i go on i need a new working title it's more than just addiction or you know we'll all pray on that for you thanks you man. man it's been an honor to have you here today um, for the listeners, take a look at what Richie's got going, the All-American Addict. Uh, be on the lookout for the uh, the the show that's coming out, the documentary that'll be coming soon. And and for today, we're going to close here. But before we do, I always like to ask, what's one thing you want the listeners to, to remember today? What's one thing you want to tell them? What I want people to remember is no matter how far down the scale you've gone, that there's hope for you and that your life has purpose. If you get clean and sober... You can save a life, and that means your life is everything. If you save just one person, not only are you saving them, you're saving everyone in their family, their son, their daughter, their mom, or their dad. You can literally change the world just by changing yourself. Yeah. Take the first step, right? So, And so thankful listeners be on the lookout for the next podcast uh, coming to be determined, and we'll catch you next time.